Well, hello everybody. We're back from uh, the alleged end of summer weekend. <laughs> it's it's it's. I always say that this is a, a weekend for me. That's always a combination of angst and celebration, which is a little bit like our funerals here, right? So. Summer's over, but that means, okay, maybe the heat is going to begin to peel back just a little bit. Um, it also means, at the same time, more work coming our way, and things start getting more intense and all those good things. But I'll tell you what, we have on the program tonight nothing, nothing but Wonder Women, action ladies. These are people who are out there getting things done one way or another. And we're going to start with these two women who have decided to take on the environmental issue at the neighborhood level. Not only at the neighborhood level, but at the block level. That's taking it all the way down. (laughs) And then after them is going to be a woman who has written a book. I don't know how many pages it is. A thousand, something like that. A magnum opus of really out there ideas for how to deal with invasive species, which is one of the things that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the death of species, which is the thing that breaks my heart every time I pick up the New York Times as another threatened animal. Um, and, and she has the solution to the ones that move where they shouldn't be, theoretically. But let's get started with Angela Chalk, who is the Executive Director of Healthy Community Services, and Dana Brown, who is the Landscape Architect. And the the two women have come up with a very aggressive, ambitious program for how to, I would say, basically take the environmental issue back to the people. When we have a guy up in the White House who, you know, don't tell me he doesn't get it. He knows. You know he knows. And he's just playing the fiddle while our country, our whole globe is burning, to, to get his votes to keep power. That's all it is. Anybody who says, Trump says, Trump thinks, that has nothing to do with it. It's just whatever he has to do to, they say, keep the base. It's not just keep the base, it's just get the votes. Anyway, I'm not going to get off on him for the rest of the show. Promise. Um, tell me about your program. Start, whoever wants to start. Okay. Um, this is Angela. So thank you for having us on the show once again. Every time we bring this topic and issue to the forefront, you're the first to call and say, hey, come on the show and let's talk really? about okay. it. Yeah, you are. So we appreciate that and want to acknowledge that. Well, I and, appreciate so much what you're doing. And then I need to thank our funders because they pay the bills. <laughs> the Greater New Orleans Foundation, Kresge Foundation, and Institute for Sustainable Communities. So what we're doing this September 22nd is creating a green block. And on that green block, we will have eight green infrastructure interventions to show residents how to reduce flooding as a result of our urban stormwater flooding events that occur. Because we know that they're coming more frequently, they're coming more intensely, and we just can't keep going through this repetitive cycle. But there is a solution in conjunction with working with our great infrastructure, which is our pipes, drains, pumps, catch basins. So we can go back to what's called the natural urban hydrology, where we use 
the natural base, whether it be a French drain, um, a planter box, or um, a rain garden or a bioswill. These things can help. Or a rain to, barrel. Or a rain barrel. Is a, if you're a rain, rain barrel. yes, it's simple yeah. as a rain barrel if you're um, harvesting rain. But what the green block is doing, it's going a little a step further. It's going to allow people to actually come to see how these interventions work. And That's see. such a great idea right. because, you know, we read these words, mm-hmm. and unless you see it, and I think I saw my first green swale. Well, I, I worked with um, Global Green mm-hmm. in the in the Ninth Ward, and we built one in right. front of the first house that was built there. But also around the corner, just absolutely quietly, and um, uh, somebody had done a beautiful one with mm-hmm. irises and all kinds of, you know, water-loving plants. Right, and that's what we use, the native species that can easily adapt to waters. And you raised a good point about the rain barrels. This block is inclusive of not only homeowners, but those renters that live on the block. So everyone that's on the 1800 block of dues between Allen and New Orleans who who wanted to participate, and that's uh, all of them, will receive some type of rain um, green infrastructure intervention. Um, we will have a solar bench installed so that post-disasters you'll be able to charge those small de- portable devices. Um, and with the assistance of Dana Brown and Associates, they have come up with the um, technical plans for it. But most importantly, looking at this through a public health lens, we'll be planting trees to help reduce that heat island effect that we all feel when we're out in the sun. And we can do that by um, planting trees. But not only are we planting trees, but we're putting bioretention tree cells along with the planting to help uptake that water. And I'll let Dana talk about the technical aspect of that. I was going to say, you that. just threw out a lot of stuff that I don't know <laughs> enough about. Okay, Dana. What was that? Water retention. The bioretention tree cells. Yeah. Bioretention tree cells. What yep. is that? Well, you can you can plant trees the way we normally do, which is let's just dig a hole and put a tree in there and put some soil back. And uh, when you do that along a street or particularly in a parking lot, the life expectancy of those trees, the average nationwide is about seven and a half years, and that's it. Wow. Uh, because, think about it, it's particularly in a 300-year-old city, that soil is compacted, that soil probably has pieces of concrete and rock and all kinds of things in there. Um, won't even get into some of the things we've found. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but if you can give the roots of those trees places to grow and place for air to get in and for water to get in, they will grow to that mature size that everybody talks about. Oh, that tree's too big to put there. Yeah, but if you don't really give it the space for the roots, it'll never get that big anyway. So a tree cell is a structural plastic sort of crate looking kind of thing and they they connect and you can have different layers and an extents of them so you take out more concrete or you take out more grass and you put tree cells in there that keep the soil from getting compacted and you refill that with really good sandy soil you know not the not the bags of miracle grow soil or whatever that you get at the the home improvement store, but sandy soil that has compost and some other things. And that's what you fill back in there so that the sandy the sandy soil is, is drains better. 
But those mm. cells let the roots grow in it, and they maintain space for the water to go in and for air to get in, because roots need air as well. They need oxygen. They need air. And so what happens, and that's the bioretention part that Angela was talking about, is the roots create a home for microbes and all kinds of other things. We know when we turn over really good soil, there's worms and all kinds of good little things in it. Well, there's things you can't even see that are in there, and those clean the water. They biologically take up pollutants and remove them out of the water. <laughs> but then they're still there, the microbes. Yeah, that's good. They but digest. They, they, they just yeah. When it's bacteria, it and bacteria, they break it down. The trees do the same. The plants, the shrubs, they break it down. So um, I, I can't help but jump to my big garden on Esplanade. That was the reason we got it because we had a big old Catahoula hound mm -hmm. that um, used to use the balcony around my house in the 1200 block of Esplanade as his toilet. And guess what was under the balcony, the bus stop? Oh, wow. <laughs> so we had to move. <laughs> and we, and it was a choice between the property we have and one that was facing City Park. And my husband kept wanting to go there. And I said, no, I like this, you know, third of an acre. Mm -hmm. Unusual in the city, in the right? City. That really? was a time when you, it was not, it was not a million dollar home. So... But the tree roots from the oak trees in my yard, and there's two big volunteers that I did not plant, and their roots are, like, getting under the concrete, pushing the walkways up, coming awfully close to maybe lifting the houses up. I, I love my big oak trees. I, believe me, I do, but I do worry about those roots. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things happening here. One is that um, live oaks that we have here, the, the um, evergreen oaks, do have shallower roots. So they do the, the roots stay higher in the ground than other oh, roots. I never dawned on me that that was what was going but, on. Yeah. But in addition to that, though, some other trees you'll see do the same kind of thing, and that's because they can't get down into the ground because there's no water there. So when... When there's the clay soil, we don't. I have clay soil. We don't condition the soil a little bit so that the roots can start to get deeper, and then once they're really well established and the roots are deeper, they can start getting into some of the clay soils because the microbes actually help that too. Um, so then the roots are looking for water, but we didn't give a way for the water to get down into the soil. You know, we cut a little hole, uh, or we drain the water away from the tree. You could see that all over the place. And so the water isn't getting in there. So the roots are looking for water. So and how do you do that? How do you do what? Get water further down, especially in clay sandier, soil. Sandier soils. Take some of that clay soil out. You can amend it with sand and mix it up. Or you can dispose of that and put in sandier soil with compost. That's what we do. And uh, sandy or soil sand. yeah, we use, compost. We use river sand that gets washed. It's inexpensive. We use and a that, lot of yeah, cheap yeah. stuff. And that's <laughs> the the whole point of this green block is for people to come out and take to, a look to, at to how take it a works. look to yeah. be engaged. I want to come and yeah. see it. Because yeah. actually, we will on the day of September twenty second, we will be putting in. Is that a Saturday? Uh, that's 20? a Sunday. The Sunday. Saints are the Saints are in Seattle. <laughs> and the event is from you one were to four. About that, weren't you? Yes, I, the events were from one to four, so you have time to come out and look at it. 
view the green block and get back home in time for the Saints game. So that was strategic <laughs> in planning at, on that date. Um, but this is the whole thing. We are we know that this block can be a model for other neighborhoods to replicate and to come out and to get educated about it. It's too late when we're when we're waiting in water to do something about it, and we are not going to pump our way out of um, the torrential rains that we're receiving. The climate is changing, whether you believe the signs or not. If you've been flooded, as most of us have been then you can understand that something definitely is changing. And we have a solution. Um, and it can be done. And together we and can make that change. Like it's not expensive. I mean, that's, uh, I think, uh, uh, a key issue for some people is that it really, I mean, even for me, you're talking about amending my soil. I literally don't think I can afford that mm-hmm. because it's too much. There's too much soil to deal with. But but the, some of the solutions you're talking about are not, a rain barrel is not a costly solution. And even the swale, I mean, I could put some swales in my property, just dig a... Here, here's the thing, Jean. Kind of dig a shallow hole, yeah. right? Even if you put in a small project this year, there's nothing to stop you from coming back the next year. So you can you build just on. Keep doing it. You yeah. just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. We have to do something, and collectively, with all of us making a change, then then we can have an impact on the repetitive flooding that we're seeing. So I'm so proud of you guys because I mean, obviously, we we have a leadership problem in our country, um, and and you just have people who are. Again, I say they know it. They know what's going on, and they just, they're in denial, and they just, I have friends who are in denial right here in this city who still think are what, you know, people call climate deniers. So you're tackling it at a level where citizens can really make a change. We're seeing that happen in a lot of different issues. Let's let's go into the program, and let's make sure everybody um, hears what's happening. So we have... Um, Let's see. First of all, you have a community meeting, preliminary survey results. Tell yes. me about that. Well, we're asking for residents, or rather we surveyed residents to participate in whether or not um, they were feeling the effects of climate change as it relates to heat. What your, what your listeners may not know is that before a heat advisory can be issued, the temperature is based on the airport because that's the official um, heat indices for our city. But that doesn't mean that it's not already hot in my neighborhood. And so what the green zone is doing is measuring the air and surface temperature in a four by two area of the seventh ward to give us some baseline preliminaries of how hot it is without trees. Those, those are blocks, right? Yeah, those are blocks. Four um, by two blocks. Four by two blocks. Four yeah. by two blocks. Yeah. I was just about to ask. Yeah, you. bounded by AP Turo to Allen and Industry to North Durgenois. So that's the area area that we surveyed. Um, and we had great response for those from those residents. And so the preliminary results are going to be released. We have... Um, a monitor from the American Geophysical Union from that will be coming in from Alaska wow. to um, li- listen at what it is and, and monitor the progress that we've had with this um, cert- with this process. Uh-huh. And then we also have um, one of our collaborating partners from the University of Michigan who will be traveling in um, for the community meeting to give the results back. You have reforestation of Seventh Ward. Mm-hmm. Understanding the health outcomes and social behaviors caused by the health island effect. The heat island effect, right? It's it's a heat island effect. Okay. And what what that means is is that neighborhoods studies have shown that neighborhoods with trees 
have less crime in them. So those are the social Damn. behaviors. Um, the trees help to clear the pollutants out of the air. So if people have respiratory issues, um, they're less likely to have those suffer from those chronic illnesses such as asthma. And um, people, once they are in surgery and they're post-op from surgery, then they are four times more likely to recover quicker with trees in their vicinity. So trees has a, I look at this from a public health lens because I have that public health background. And so I want our neighborhood to be healthier. This summer we had the hottest July on record. So if you had to walk to the grocery and there's a neighborhood without trees, then you had a task to get to and from the grocery or just to do the daily essential living activities. And that task is, you know, uh, you feel it while you're doing it, but the after effect is something we don't really often right. think about, and it does exhaust you. And that's what we found preliminarily um, when in interviewing the um, the residents of the neighborhood. And I have to thank um, Dr. Amy Lesson of the Tulane University Bywater Institute and Julia Kumar um, of IC, Ch- uh, yeah, mm-hmm. IC Change that helped um, with that um, surveying. And, but most importantly, again, we brought it back to the neighborhood level. So we have residents in the neighborhood that live in the neighborhood that um, participating and help taking surveys. So they were trained to do surveys as researchers so that is not to violate anybody's privacy um, in conducting this research. So we have some sound data that we're, that's going to come out of this. And, and you're saying that citizens actually were involved in conducting the survey? Yeah, residents of um, oh, Seventh really Ward were in, that's yes. That's great. I've yes. always thought that um, neighborhoods, citizens should be more involved in some of the work that has normally been done by professionals from yeah. somebody some, from somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. And, and, and let me say this again. I live in that neighborhood. I'm fourth generation in that neighborhood. So I have a vested interest in the health and well-being, not just of me, but my neighbors and uh, other relatives that live in that neighborhood. And so this is not someone coming out of, from outside of our community saying, mm-hmm. this is what we want you to do. No, this is being driven by the community, and I can say that I am so grateful and so blessed to have the support of so many people to be able to put forth this vision. And I know that you got them out there too. <laughs> I know, I know, I know you well enough to know that you got them out there. Um, so that Saturday, September twenty-first, ten a.m. to eleven thirty at the Nora Navra yes. Library, that beautiful new library on Saint Bernard Avenue. Mm-hmm. Work and learn. Rain Garden Installation, Saturday, September 21st, 2019, 10 a.m. Yeah. to 12. We actually changed that to the 22nd, so okay. the day of the event. So that's going to okay. be the 22nd. So that will be part right. of the same program. Right. But, um, okay, Work and Learn Rain Garden Installation. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're going to learn yeah. about how to build it. I, I mean, yes. What, yes. What Angela's been talking mm-hmm. about and what people are going to see is going to be, I think, very empowering to them because, um, you know, I, I – what we can do can make a difference. My office has calculated what if everybody just did a little bit all over the city? We could manage 10% of the storms that we get. So is that kind of your of goal? You're going to try to reduce flood risk. flooding flood flood risk risk. by 10%. Well, or whatever At least. we can. Yeah. We can, but this block, this green block, it not only is going to show each thing, each item, you said eight yes. different types, mm-hmm. but it's going to show them in, a, in a, a, a concentrated area. So you really can start to see an effect. 
uh, better, better, so that hopefully it is a model for other blocks. Um, but if you, if people did a rain garden and a barrel, or a bioretention cell and a French drain, or whatever, if most people did that, not everybody, but even most, we could we could get 10% of the rainwater managed and not in the pipes. That's just huge. And not flooding us. That's huge. And that's and if I could interject one quick that, thing. That and getting all those Mardi Gras bees out of the uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> out of you out know, of the. Uh, that's a really good point. You know, yeah. people look at green infrastructure and say, well, I don't want to have to do that maintenance. Well, that's a lot easier to, to lean over and pick up some weeds or some trash than it is to go and haul a car out of a, a big box culvert. Yeah. And, and we don't maintain the gray infrastructure. So we think of it as not needing maintenance. But the green infrastructure is right in front of you. You're, it's in your face. So you yeah. got to maintain it. And, and, you know, interestingly, uh, one of the things that was the most heartening to me after the storm, uh, because I, and why I think this is going to work, um, but I, I remember so clearly coming back from, we didn't evacuate far and long. We were only gone the month of September in Baton Rouge, and we got back here as fast as we could before it was really totally legal. And um, I watched as green and flowers and shrubs started popping up in front of houses. And, oh, my God, that was so – it was just so heartwarming to see that and know that folks cared. And one of the first things they wanted to do was bring the green back. So that's why I know what you're doing is going to work. The Green Block, demonstration of eight green infrastructure interventions, rain barrel build – Demonstration solar bench installation. Yes. Um, through that? the works of Groundworks NOLA, they will be installing um, a solar bench. And so that solar bench will be able to recharge small um, cell phones and portable devices so that we can use that. For instance, if the, if the power goes out, this will be a community space that residents can come and charge those small portable devices and electronic devices. The other thing is that each resident on that block will get um, solar-powered address panels. So at night you'll be able to see their addresses because, you know, at night if you have an emergency and you're trying to get some assistance, they're looking all over for the address. Well, they will have addresses that um, are Powered by solar energy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that sounds great, too. And three of the homeowners actually (coughs) have solar-powered homes, including mine. So I have a solar-powered home as well. And we're just trying to show how people can be green and sustainable because, uh, again, our climate is changing. You don't have to believe the science. You can feel it. You can see it every time it rains if you can't get to your car. Just come out, and I've had interest as far away as Terrebonne Parish for people to come in to see this green block. And um, just today it was confirmed that um, Deputy Chief, Ram- is he Deputy Chief Ramsey Green? Ramsey Green, w- yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll attend the event, the ribbon okay. cutting. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, One quick thing, I want to make sure we mention that uh, on um, the 14th of September we're mm-hmm. going to be building some of the, some parts of it. Right. And L.A. Green Corps is uh, coming out to help us. I don't know if you know that group, but mm-hmm. they, they're, they're teaching, uh, they're being taught construction um, skills. I go in and teach green infrastructure 
uh, skills as well. So they're going to come out and learn some more and help us out. That sounds fabulous. So, so that's residents, be on that's the block. a 14th. Yes, that's going to be on the block. So if residents want to come and see the dirty work of it, they can actually come and see. Heavy, a little heavy lifting. Yeah, the heavy lifting, dirty work. What hours it. between what? Um, and eight to eight a.m. to three p.m. Like yeah, that. something like that. Yeah, that's the the time frame. And what day of the week is the 14th? That's a Saturday. That's a Saturday. Either that's we're a, finished or we're exhausted, and that's when we'll stop. Yeah. Right. And what Dana isn't telling you is that um, she just had her. First class of certifi- nationally certified green infrastructure professionals. And so her next class will be starting September the 21st. She's not plugging this, but I am. Okay. And so um, myself and three of the neighborhood champions received that national certification in green infrastructure. And right, so we're right. we're moving this along. We're not just talking the talk. We walk in the walk. And to use the words of um, of my colleague Cheryl Austin with the Greater Tremaine Consortium, we're we're moving people towards green infrastructure, not just applying the the technology and the techniques, but we're educating people so that they can take the next step in this. Empowering them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I can't think of too many people uh, more empowered than you guys, and uh, putting on a more empowering program. What um, either website or phone number can we give people uh, because they're not going to remember all these details. Yeah. Um, HCSNOLA.org. Say that again. H, H- Happy Cup Sam. Happy Cup, Cup Sam. Sam. HCS. NOLA. NOLA.org. .org. And then the Waterwise we're, Gulf South. We're, yeah. uh, we're, part of, we're partners in Waterwise yeah. Gulf South. Yes. So WaterwiseGulfSouth.org is a nonprofit also that uh, we we that Angela's organization works with and that I work with all the time. Okay. And and we're on Facebook. And if anyone wants to attend, they can register at Eventbrite, and they can just put in um, Green Block, and it'll come up. It costs a lot. It's free. <laughs> but Not only that, but there are. Interactive activities for kids, mm-hmm. door prizes, and refreshments. Yes, um, no, and we're gonna yeah gotta. we're gonna feature a artist. So we have a rain barrel artist. So one of those rain barrels will be um, a door prize. And I can tell you, if you don't want to come to see anything else, come and see that spectacular art because we are taking this to the next level. <laughs> I am excited and thrilled with what you all are doing. By the way, did you know about the uh, NOLA lifeboat that Bob Tannen did? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Did you hear about Mm -hmm. it? Okay. So he took a a real live lifeboat from a, I don't know whether it's from a freighter or a cruise ship or what, but a 30-foot long, 10-foot high red lifeboat, and he plunked it down in the middle of Julia Street for White Linen Nights. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so people are saying, what is what is the lifeboat doing on Julia Street? And, and Tanner would say, okay, well, you better think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need it. Yeah. Ladies, thank you so much for what you're doing. And um, great day, the 22nd. Sounds like the 14th is worth, worth it also, 8 to 3 on the 14th, and the 22nd. Um, 21st for uh, hearing some of these results on the survey. This is great stuff. Keep it up. Thank you, Jean. I'm with you and I support you. Um, I'm now going to bring in um, my next guest who um, is equally committed to addressing our environmental plight in a totally different way. 
and um, with lots of um, really, truly, let's call it different approaches. You all want to listen to the radio show after you leave. Okay, ladies, bye-bye. All right, so this is now Kirsha Kashala. Now, Kirsha has spent some time in the Seventh Ward also, uh, right around the same uh, – they're, they're between um, – Eighth see. Ward. Huh? Eighth Ward. Um, oh, you were in yeah, the Eighth Ward? Yeah, between, between Music and Arts oh, okay. on North Villery. All right. Uh, and uh, she did uh, quite a number of arts projects there that also many of them had environmental themes involved. And then she got this crazy notion to, to do a – huge book and when I mean huge I mean in both content size but also con- um, the ideas that are in there the mm-hmm. ideas are huge so uh, I, 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 I warned her that I was going to start with the first question I was going to ask her give me, give me some adjectives <laughs> that you would use to describe your book which is called Eat the Problem mm, well I mean, it depends on your perspective. So I would use beautiful, delicious, gorgeous, but somebody else might use weird, freaky, disgusting, depending on how they feel about the particular species that's being featured in that chapter. Well, I think it's a lot of both. Yeah, it's both. The, The images, the way you have composed on a page, the ingredients that might go into a recipe for some what I would normally think of as creepy stuff. Maybe repulsive, maybe. <laughs> I, I wouldn't use the word repulsive, but creepy stuff, because I, I, I don't like bugs. Yeah, okay. well, so there well, really... there's a lot of edible you know, bugs in your book. There are, and they are very in fashion in the culinary world. You know, so That doesn't make me like <laughs> bugs any better. Wait until you eat at Pujol, you know, in Mexico City. You will love bugs. <laughs> you know, okay. it just depends how they're prepared, really. Yeah. You know, and that's part of the culture as well. So there's a long cultural history of eating, you know, grasshoppers and ants, these, like, big butt ants. And um, it's, they're ants. called big butt ants. <laughs> <laughs> and they're only in season and once a year, and it's a complete delicacy, you know. And, yeah, Pujol, top ten restaurants in the world, these chefs, I invited those sh- kinds of chefs on purpose because I knew you needed a name like that or a reputation like that in order to kind of get some of these ingredient, ingredients across the line of, you know, most people's consciousness. How <laughs> many, how many um, recipes... Um, are in the book about? I'd say like about, there's about 40 recipes. Um, God, it seems like more than that. Well, because there's so much other content. There's you know, so there's, many other in, there's research, images. creative writing, there's artwork that people have created using invasive species. So it's artists, it's thinkers, creative writers, scientists, philosophers, and of course, main, the kind of stars of the book are the chefs, I suppose. Let's go back to why you did this and um, and, and how you th- feel um, eating the problem will actually address the issue of invasive species. And let's review what invasive species are because that's a part of the book that I kind of studied um, quite a bit. And it's it's not what you necessarily assume it to be. Well, I mean, an invasive species is a species that's been moved from one habitat into a new environment, a new ecosystem, and because they don't have any natural predators and they weren't part of that system, there's nothing to keep them in check. 
so their population can just go crazy, you know, like kudzu. It'll just swallow entire forests and drown the trees because the system didn't evolve to kind of live with kudzu. And so it's, it has the opportunity to go haywire and cause a lot of ecological problems. So from an ecologist perspective, and of course they, they work with governments, there's, a, there's often policies to eradicate these invasive species in order to protect the natural environment, like nutria in Louisiana. You know, we have a bounty on their tail because um, their numbers are ha- exploded out of control. They have no predator, and they eat the roots of the swamp, and they help disintegrate it, and the land washes away, and it's a massive ecological disaster. So, you know, we... We see these governmental responses, and oftentimes these these species, plant or animal, are just being eradicated or killed, and then they're kind of left. No one's appreciating them as a resource, or reimagining them as like a resource. Why should, you know, why are we so sad? We should say, hey, there's tons of them. Oh my gosh, I can finally get a fur coat guilt-free. You know, or whatever it is, or maybe eat it. You know, Susan Spicer made a recipe in the book for the nutria. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, I have a, a cookbook, which I, I, I should have mentioned to you before, but I'll mention it now. It's called Louisiana Cookery. Mm. And it was by a woman who worked for the state agricultural whatever. And she went around the state collecting recipes from people. And about a third of the book is all kinds of wild animals, all kinds of things that you would not necessarily think about eating, the kinds of things that you read about um, uh, Cajuns in Cajun country That's right. eating. And um, I'll show you. It's a, 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 some of the recipes are amazing. Super interesting. And, I mean, it's culturally interesting. And, and like I said, a lot of the species that, you know, we might be turned off by or not appreciate or not use – they are celebrated in another culture, another cuisine. So sometimes you kind of just need that chef or that that sort of methodology to come in and say, well, look, these are they're, it's just a cultural perception, and we really ought to get over it. Also, for, nutritious, for nutrition purposes, I mean, we have this kind of staid diet, and we're eating, like, factory-farmed meat full of hormones. There's ethical problems with the meat. The animals might have suffered, you know. It's kind of gross when you go visit those farms. They're all packed in. They're not eating nice, Poor fresh little feed. chickens living body to body for their it's whole lives. It's depressing. It's gross. It's not healthy. It's full of hormones and, and causing problems with all the um, antibiotics they use. Well, I don't want to eat that. It's kind of disgusting and wrong. And then so you have to think about what there's too much of. You know, we have wild boar. The government is paying people to shoot them from helicopters with semi-automatic rifles and leave the bodies there. Why aren't we eating the wild boar? I have had wild boar sausage made by my neighbor's uh, where my little house in the woods is in Mississippi, mm. and it's delicious. It's so good. And what, you prefer to have an antibiotic-filled suffering, like, pig, farmed, factory-farmed pig? No, thank you. The Are boar. you listening? The Are boar sounds way better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and so it's just about logical thinking sometimes. You know, we're not really taking a systems-based approach and looking at all our resources and options. All right, let's let's um, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's talk about um, some of the recipes and some of the critters that you are recommending we eat, like the humans. 
Well, that's let's oh, no, not let's go into get, the Let's human. wait on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's an art book, okay? Right. Yeah. No. Let's let's uh, let let's go into. Okay. Um, so we talked about Nutria a little bit, but. Um, you can either go into a recipe for Nutria, which is a common critter around here, or um, whatever you want. Let's let's take some, okay. some of the really strange Nutria. Ones. I tried yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I don't normally even eat meat, but I thought it was absolutely delicious. I ate Susan Spicer's Nutria, and um, I'm going to eat some Nutria gumbo on Sunday. You're going to eat some too. Uh oh. Over at our friend's house. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll be trying it again, and we can kind of really refine our attitude about what it tastes like. But I thought it was good. Again, I think it's entirely a matter of perception. And um, Paul Prudhomme, he tried to popularize that back in the day, but it was maybe a little early. I think now that the locavore movement has really kind of taken off, that society's ready. So um, uh, I I guess it was... It's a Roy Gust. Roy Gust introduced us Tannen and me at Antoine's once to what he called a rich boy, as opposed mm. to a poor boy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Alligator. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're not invasive, so you know they're not on the list. But I know they taste great. They taste great. Yeah. But people not who aren't from Louisiana, you know, we they have that at Giacomo's. You can eat it, yeah. alligator cheesecake. But if you're not from Louisiana, that sounds shocking. Yeah. Just like if you're not from Australia, you think it's weird that they eat kangaroo. But that's not weird. They're just like it's big pieces of meat jumping all over the landscape, ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's let's do some other some other weirder creatures that. We would never have thought of, as I said in my, in my uh, coverage in my newsletter, I would never have thought of putting these things in my mouth. Mm. Okay. We know that sea urchin is not actually weird, right? What? Sea urchin. Sea urchin. We know that's not really weird, right? I mean, anyone who likes sushi knows that it's a delicacy. You pay a lot for sea urchin because it's incredible, it's creamy, it's delicious. The Japanese consume it at, an, at such a fast rate the world population can barely keep up, except that there's a, a, a species of sea urchin that just wasn't on the list, you know what I mean? And that's invading the waters off of Tasmania, where I live now. And so we've just had gotten all the chefs in Tasmania to start using that sea urchin, and it's delicious. And it was just, you know, massive resor- resource, and you don't need to pay, you know, a fortune for it. Okay, sea urchin. Sea urchin. Nutria. Okay, there's some really scary ones in there. Do you want to get into the yeah, really? Let's do it. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Can I first just so that I don't sound too weird? Can we mention that there is a whole chapter on venison, deer? Um, there's whole chapters on rabbit, which is very common on a menu, um, and there's whole chapters on all of the delicious and nutritious weeds that are really like gorgeous greens, you know, and they taste like collard greens or something. Um, but beyond that, you know, Australia has a massive problem with feral cats, and they are killing off all of the native birds at a fast rate. So a few hunters have taken it upon themselves to try and control the cat population by hunting them. Meow. Meow. <laughs> Uh, my dog would be on your side. Yeah. I can tell you that. Okay, that one, I that was in the local paper in Tasmania, and that really did give, get me a few oh, death threats. Oh, you got threats. all the cat lovers. Death threats. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, I did think, you know, we. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm like, involved in a museum, and 
we were hosting a dinner to celebrate the completion of the book. So, of course, we were serving all the invasive species, and I thought mainly for conceptual reasons we should serve a bit of cat. And so the chef kind of reluctantly agreed, and he said, okay, I'm going to do a cat consomme. So um, I was thinking that was just going to be this kind of terrifying, disgusting, you know, art experience, not anything practical or delicious. And so then, of course, the cat course comes, and I designed it to the plates are, like, red, and it looks terrifying on purpose. You know, I'm really playing it up as part of the menu. Um, and then I tasted it, and it was so delicious. <laughs> I'm sorry, but, but it, has it actually do. just tastes so good. So <laughs> something, something to do with the spices and flavoring and, and preparation. No. No, something to do with, you know, I'm not saying I would be able to do it again easily, but it did really bring home for me the fat, the reality that these perceptions are cultural. You know, yeah. an Indian would never eat a cow. It's just mm-hmm. so wrong. You just don't eat cows in India. And, you know, a lot of Jewish people would never touch pig. But um, Or Muslims. Yeah, or Muslims also, as well. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Huge parts of the world don't touch pig, and Americans just gobble pigs up. So it's cultural. Yeah. There's not too many things better than pork ribs. Oh, there is. um, (laughs) You know, again, it was an art book, so I purposely looked for the scary (laughs) ingredients just for fun. It's entertaining as well and interesting. And so I did find out that there was a whole kind of scene around eating squirrel brain. Ooh. Yeah, in America. Ah. It's American. It's American? (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people who uh, in the – era when we hunted for our own food Mm. and you're out in the woods and there's squirrels running around don't tell me they didn't shoot them to eat them oh the meat i mean obviously why wouldn't you eat squirrel meat again you know just get over it it's good it tastes good but the but apparently the brain is a delicacy so then there was even this whole brains are delicacies in a lot of cultures that's right right. yeah i mean we eat cow brains we eat brains we eat sweetbreads yeah you know it's just sweetbreads not me not me either. <laughs> no. I don't even eat cow. I wouldn't eat cow. No way. I think that's horrible. What kind of greens? Um, I Okay, so all of the beautiful weeds, dandelion and nettle. We had these Italian chefs make these amazing, like, nettle pestos. And, um, oh, I mean, the list of weeds is huge. Oh, and kudzu. We found so many uses for kudzu. And people in the south of the U.S. who use the kudzu... Um, flowers to make jelly. They use the vines to make baskets. And there was an amazing interview um, by a local artist, Megan. I can't think of her last name, but she's she interviewed this woman whose entire livelihood depended on um, kudzu. Like she had fully embraced this, you know, flaw. And that that's the idea of the book: is flaw into feature, mm-hmm. you know, shit into gold. How does the thing that we revile become something that we celebrate? So that takes me to the fundamental question. How did you get started on this? And how did you get up the energy and the conviction to plunge into it to the level that you did? This book really is a magnum opus. It is huge. The um, images, the artistry of your images, of course, you make all these nasty things look absolutely elegant and beautiful aesthetically 
it's 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 an amazing experience just to flip through the book and look at the images of the of the preparations is is a trip in and of itself and then the philosophical content and the art content um the only as i was going through it i think i made this reference in in my article in the newsletter about how it reminded me of the victorian era curio i'm sure that mm, yeah uh, that it is it's a cabinet of curiosities yeah definitely in the form of a book but what what inspired all this where where did this come from well i mean the inspiration came from i think this deeper idea um that comes from kind of systems based thinking or i don't know maybe early psychedelic experiences just this idea that um what we perceive as a problem or something hateable or problematic um might just be a perception problem and it's about shifting the way you see and kind of recontextualizing things so that you can celebrate it and benefit from its existence so it's like a yes it's just having a yes attitude um and so yeah flaw into feature for me it's a deep philosophical idea and it just happened to take the form of invasive species they're the particular problem but i mean maybe i'll do future books that look at other problems that was my next question i mean <laughs> now I, that I, i've I, suffered I, through that though i, I mean, might not i mean seriously it took 5 <laughs> years to do this so i i don't know how many more of these you want to do because i think one of these would be definitely enough for me but um where can somebody actually purchase your book they can get it on the mona website Um so it's mona m o n a .com.au because Mona's the museum in Australia What is that Mona published mean? it Mona yeah. Museum of Old and New Art mm-hmm. Yeah which is a great idea in and of itself and something that you had a big part in doing but um we only have so much time so what I want to jump to for a minute we can come back to that is the school that you're working on here because I do want to touch on sure. that before we've run out of time so yeah. tell me about your school that you have also started here in New Orleans Yeah well I had a project here before I moved to Tasmania um that had you know classes free classes for the community as part of this kind of uh contemporary art space um experimental space that really showed art in a kind of a bunch of abandoned buildings but um po- I left you know I moved away and I just didn't want to kind of end that work in particular the gardens and then I don't know I ended up doing a, a project here that resulted in um for the biennial a recording studio a free recording studio for the community and that then um no one wanted that to close for the end of the biennial so i said okay great we'll leave it open and um the museum is funding it and then that grew to kind of exploring the other interests of the young people um now deeper kind of into the ninth ward um at material institute and so yeah i established a I I don't want to call it a school. It's really more of like a Black Mountain College for urban youth. You know, it's a Okay, most people don't an, know what Black Mountain. Well, look it up because it's cool. But Black Mountain College was my inspiration. What it is is a free school with amazing tools and uh, awesome teachers and workshops that come teachers come in from everywhere and the students really get to pursue, pursue their own interests and we build the curriculum around their interests. And so we currently have a music program called the Embassy Recording Studio and then we have um 24 karat garden which is a youth garden program where they cook and prepare food and do uh, entrepreneurial projects selling what they create and then a, a fashion school. 
So the whole thing... The what school? A fashion school. Fashion school. Yeah, and they're doing all this natural dyeing right now, and that's all kind of... Uh, all the students are going to Chicago to show in the Biennale. So it's these kinds of opportunities um, where just the local talent is paired with kind of the larger art world. Is this actually, uh, but this is not a, a formal high school. Can they? No. They can't get a degree from it. No. So this is kind of like you go to school in the morning and you come here in the afternoon the way you might go to NOCA to That's study right. various. That's uh, It's a more open, free, unstructured, experimental NOCA. Okay. Base, and smaller. <laughs> right. You know, it's a it's how, young. how many students can you serve? Well, you know, we're sort of figuring that out and kind of defining how large these programs can get. But at the moment, we're probably serving about 20 in each program at one time. The garden can take more students. Um, so, And then, you know, there's open community days where anyone can just show up. So some, you, like for the recording studio, you apply at the embassymusic.org, um, at their website. Say that again? Uh, embassy mu- the Embassy Music Studio. They can... Go online. Embassy Music Studio. Yeah, okay. The Embassy Music Studio. Okay. And so um, they apply, and then they can they essentially get an eight month eight month residency where that's very focused, and it results in an album. So that serves you know thirteen people at any one time. Plus, then the weekends have open studio time. So. Um, does a does a student who participates in this program come out of it with some kind of a certificate? Well, not not at the moment. They you know if they're in the music, they come out with an album. If they're in the fashion, they come out with a resume. I mean, you get to say you showed in the Chicago Biennale, for example, or whatever the various programs are. They end up with a portfolio, but and a resume. But um, we intend to involve programs where you do get certificates. You do get. And to align some programs with the more traditional education stream so you can get credits. So so this is kind of... Um, While staying very radical, <laughs> very free, you know. Well, um, but, you know, it, it, it really reflects how culture develops in New Orleans. I mean, this is not a very structured um, cultural grounds. It's, it's, it is a kind of... Um, more like a common grounds of culture. And um, that's the way most people who develop an art form, whether it's music or fashion or um, writing or film, whatever, it's, it's, it's coming from a very natural place mm. um, in the hearts and minds and souls of our youth and our, our people. So to me, this is not radical at all. No, we just, this no, really it's actually just cutting edge education and it does reflect the spirit of New Orleans. Yeah. And I think the attitude of the school is what works. So if, you know, we tried some more structured classes because particularly for fashion, it's useful to learn set skills to start out with. But the students didn't really want to do it that way. So then we just decided, okay, we'll move towards a exhibit, a a show, a fashion show, and then each student can kind of focus on what their dream is that they want to design, and then they, we assist, support with qualified teachers and all of the tools and skills, and then they kind of learn that way through their project. And that's, that's just cutting-edge learning, really. I mean, most schools are starting to move that way anyway. How does how does somebody who's interested in participating in this, either as a student or as, as a teacher... 
How, where do they go? Well, yeah, we're actually hiring an executive director right now for the entire school, and we are also hiring a garden program director. Um, and so they could call, oh, gosh, our website I don't think is really up, but they, there's jobs at, on the Mona website. The jobs are listed, mona.net.au, M-O-N-A.net.au, has the direct executive director job position that you can fill out online. And then also um, we've posted links to them, like even on my Instagram and, you know, I'm Kirsha Keshela. Or on the Material Institute Instagram, you can connect to the to that link. So Material, that sounds like the best place to go. Material, material Institute. Institute. Instagram. On Instagram. Yeah. Okay. So that's and, how- and people can message too if they can't find, you know, the information. What's next? <laughs> That's enough, isn't uh, it? No, enough? No, no, you, can, you can stop right there. You I don't mean, have to do another book, thing. Look, the book was made. I, I know you, you well said, enough to know that there's a next. What made me know I could accomplish that? Nothing. Naivete and deluge, self-delusion. Had I known how hard it would be, I wouldn't have done it, probably. But it, you know, you just fool yourself and you go along step by step. And I always said, I'm almost done. You know, and it was five years later it was done. The school is just a massive project, and it's just going to unfold and get richer and deeper and better over the years. That's the goal. So I'm not, you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'm a mom, too. I mean, maybe I do have to do – I do want to kind of create some citywide systems to transcend plastic and takeaway container use. That's kind of my other passion. So I am thinking about that. I'm, I'm talking to a university, RMIT in Melbourne, Australia, about designing a whole citywide takeaway container system where when you order food, it all comes in these city-owned recyclable containers, and it's run by an app, and you just get paid deposit, and you transcend waste, basically. Let me, let me, let me, uh, put, your creative <laughs> mind, let me put your creative mind to solving a problem for me. So I, I'm trying to get off the plastic kick, too. And so I I save glass bottles mm. from drinks, from um, uh, pickles, from anything, which I use to store things rather than store them in plastic. Because I yeah. read this horrible thing about how things that are stored in plastic pick up the molecules of plastic and they're in our bodies. I mean, that just horrifies me. bad for you. Once I saw that, my, my trend towards using glass bottles exploded. There's only one problem. I don't know where to put all the bottles. We'll have to talk about this <laughs> off the air because we're running out of time. But this woman's name is Kirsha Kashala. And um, she got schooled, you might say, in the 8th Ward, um, not too far from St. Rock Avenue, when she started doing art projects there in an old bakery. And now she's got this magnum opus out there in the world. She is doing this fabulous school, the Material Institute. And you could go check that out at Mona, M-O-N-A. And eat you probably know somebody named Mona. And that- .net. Dot .au for Australia, which is where she commutes to and from New Orleans to. Just a quick commute. <laughs> How long is that flight? Oh, you know, it's like not that bad. Well, whatever. <laughs> Go to Sydney and then it's 16 hours. See, and that's that delusion that she was talking <laughs> about that uh, enabled her to do the big uh, magnum opus called Eat the Problem. I like the idea of eating the problem. This is Jean Nathan. It's Cross Town Conversations. In my new time, Tuesday nights from 
6 to 7. I think they're actually going to, for a while, rebroadcast this on Wednesday, from what I understand. I don't know how long that'll be, so I'm not going to want to promote it big time until I know how that's going to work out. But um, I'd love to be doing this even more often. One of these days I will. That's on my list. It's my little puppet list. Thank you, Kirsha. Thank, Thank you, everybody Thanks out there. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was fun. Yeah. This is Jean Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Talk to you next Tuesday. Thank <laughs> you.